Hello, and welcome to episode eight of the LCLC podcast. In this episode, I talk with Judith Roof. Now retired, Judith taught at five institutions, the last being Rice, where she was the William Shakespeare Chair in English. She is the author of The Comic Event, Comic Performance from the 1950s to the Present, What Gender Is and What Gender Does, as well as five other monographs, six edited or co-edited books, and more than 80 essays. When I interviewed her in December 2021, she was at work on a critical study of film music co-authored with her former student, Mark Trevino. I began our discussion, as I like to do with all my interviewees, by asking them, what is your earliest memory of attending an LCLC? Actually, my earliest memory is it's the first one I went to, which was in 1985. It was my first year as a faculty member at Illinois State University. And a couple of colleagues and I, uh, Richard Feldstein and Andrew Ross, came and went down to Louisville. And uh, the the bad part was we didn't stay at the conference hotel, which kind of kept us out of the really wonderful kind of sociality that Louisville has. But the great part was I, I heard wonderful papers. Um, <laughs> I was, the paper I gave was on Eugène Ionesco and I was in a French panel and I became friends with all of the people on that panel, which was just recommended the conference even more. And we did have a little trouble getting back cause there was an ice storm, which is also something I remember. But, uh, it was really it, it really kind of convinced me that that was a great conference just from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And did you uh, attend again the following year or was it a few years before you found your way back to Louisville? How, how well, often did you attend? At first, there was a competing conference that was at the end of January at, in Tallahassee at Florida State on film and literature. And that's, I also, uh, in 1985, went to that conference. And it was, a, I don't know, we kept going back to that one. I met, for example, ironically, met Tom Byers in Tallahassee uh, the first time at that conference. Um, I didn't really go back to Louisville, it appears. I was looking at my Vita to see when I went back until I moved to the University of Delaware. Um, And then I started going a lot more, pretty much consistently from then on. Mm -hmm. Part of it had to do with just the difficulty of traveling anywhere from normal Illinois. So. Mm -hmm. And then you moved to Delaware and started to attend more regularly. Do you, do you remember uh, from your Delaware years, any, uh, papers that you you gave or experiences at the conference that are memorable? Uh, actually, yes. There was one uh, paper that I gave, co-gave, with one of my graduate students, Michelle Schaff. Um, and one of the, the reasons that we, that Louisville was such an attractive place for that was because you could do those kinds of I wouldn't call it experimental, but things were that were a little bit not the norm and and get, you know, you would it would be acceptable. People would make response, comments, et cetera. That doesn't always happen at every other conference. So Michelle and I uh, took our paper on the road to Louis uh, to Louisville and and really had a it was a really good. It was a very good experience for me and it was a great experience for her. Mm-hmm. So 
that's the one I remember the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in in terms of the guests I've already interviewed for the podcast, Alan Golding, who I know you know as well as the former director before me, he he comes in around 1989. So you attending in 1985 is earlier uh, than Alan. Do you have any memories uh, about the 85 conference in terms of who the keynotes were or any other um, aspects of that conference that, that you remember that you could share? Just, I don't remember who the keynotes were. And I'm, I'm, and I'm really bad about keynotes because I, I don't really pay much attention to them. And um, <laughs> um, often in the, like the last 15 years, don't even go um, unless they're Percival Everett or Octavia Butler. Um, but I do remember the feel of the conference, which was open, collegial. Um, it, it was really um, a, a great experience. It wasn't my first academic conference, but it certainly was uh, partly because I'd just been to Florida State, but it was, it was very much um, the feel of a kind of conviviality and sharing of uh, knowledge and experience and questions it was a bit more a theory, as you suggested in one of your later questions, it was a bit more theory-oriented than it is now. I, it was the feel of a conference that was incredibly attractive, and what you saw at the conference and what impressed me about my first visit there was the openness of the conference, the variety of topics and presentations that there were, and the general feel of a kind of intellectual community. That, um, you know, even in conferences I'd been to before, um, I didn't feel as much as I did at Louisville. And it made, it made us feel very, very welcome down there. Well, to us, it was down. Um, so that's what I remember, actually. Mm -hmm. And as a, a scholar of narrative, I wanted in particular to ask you about your thoughts of my project, which is to create an oral history or histories of the LCLC conference now that 2023 will be the 50th year for mm -hmm. us as a, as a tradition. What's, what's your thoughts on this new podcast form and a project like mine? I like the idea of collecting narratives about this very much. It seems to me to be very much in keeping with the kind of intellectual community and legacies of uh, the Louisville Conference. Um, I'm probably not someone to talk to about any kind of digital media because uh, I'm merely a critic. So <laughs> podcasts, I've never even listened to a podcast. Really? That's just me. Really, I don't like digital media. I don't like being tracked. I don't want my life used as fodder for corporate profit. I It's completely unreliable. Don't let your life depend on it. <laughs> and algorithms are always biased. Can I say less? Right. Do you feel that your attitude then tracks with um, a, a kind of nostalgic 
embrace of the book and print culture as an alternative? I actually totally believe in the book and print culture, not as an alternative to, but they are the culture. They will survive. Anything on digital media is dead. Uh, the fact that um, what's his name made a slip and used the word meta was kind of interesting. <laughs> um, anything that's been codified, it doesn't exist anymore. And books do. And they may rot over time, but you still have them. And we also do know that people read much differently and much more effectively in, with physical text than they do on screens. So uh, I, I'm not, I don't like electronic. Do you, do you text. read on screen? No, ever, never. Mm -hmm. Just your email. Email and and because of the way the news now works, um, I, you know, I have to look at the headlines of about 15 different papers, but it's it's uh, very, very it's clear from doing that how unreliable the news media online is. I don't know if they're any more reliable in print these days, but it's very difficult to get print subscriptions to anything now. When you and I have had a chance to meet and uh, it's it's that's not been too regular occurrence, but I, I do remember. Uh, chatting with you a few times, usually at Alan Golding's house or at Tom Byers at a party afterwards. And often uh, you're, you are with friends and, and often with your students, your graduate students in past years. What's your feeling about being a professor who's had the opportunity of going to the LCLC with your own students? I think it is absolutely a wonderful vector for them. They get to see all kinds of work at Louisville. People don't act as constrained and hierarchical as they do at um, MLA fund. I don't know what it is about. There's nothing wrong with them, but they people behave I don't know. Uh, they're more aware of status. At Louisville, you kind of lose that status thing. And that means that people will talk to other people without even really worrying about that. It's a great experience. For grad students, they also get to see a number of different styles of papers being delivered in different styles. They get to see people giving papers and they get to see them because Louisville has such a good uh, a social aspect to it which I think is one of its one of its major strong points is you don't just go watch papers. You get to talk to people, you get to share ideas, you get to have fun. Um, you, you create a lot of things in those moments where you're not listening to someone else talk. Um, it's, it's for them. It's great. They get to see a lot of different possibilities. They get to have reactions to their projects and it kind of uh, initiate themselves into the scholarly community. It's it's a it's really wonderful, and and that Louisville will accept their papers has has been also an, a really good thing. Do you think that keynotes are something that should be phased out of conference experiences? One of the strong points about coming together is that you might have something that many people can talk about that might be related to some of you know the other panel sessions you've seen and you come away with you know kind of a newfound uh life a new wow yeah this is cool let's go for it 
often the, what I found, I think, is the keynotes weren't doing that after a certain point. And I'm wondering if if one had uh, invented a different kind of onstage exchange, not so much a panel discussion, because those can be kind of stultifying and boring as well, but some kind of interesting way of exchanging ideas on stage that can get the audience involved and not necessarily as, you know, um, interrogators or interlocutors, but at least get the ideas out there um, over something where people have different opinions um, or something like that. That might actually update that, make people much more interested in that. The same thing, I think, maybe running out of, um, you know, out of gas a bit. There was a mm. moment when it worked very, very well, um, probably in the 80s and 90s. I think it kind of started to lose ground after the turn of the century a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that is the case because the notion of a main draw, let's call it an academic star, has eroded within our profession or is it something else? I suspect that what's happened is that the notion of the academic star, which I, I, from the 90s, I, I think that was probably the high point, 80s and 90s. Uh, I think after that, what happened was that people were not getting the insight or the charisma. It's not that the people were less able or less intelligent or less accomplished. It's that that mode of the star model didn't carry as much with it anymore. And that may, in fact, uh, have something to do with the, with the fact that the Internet became a public entity in 1994. I don't know what the connection is, but it might be an interesting paper to write. Um, mm -hmm. While you seem to be able to uh, disseminate stardom more easily, somehow in that dissemination, stardom loses its allure. But I agree with you that there's a lot to be said that the um, the but the sort of effective high that comes from being in the same room with somebody that is has has attached to them that aura of academic stardom has has had a half life that has waned considerably. Um, and that the transference properties of uh, the next generation feeling connected to those individuals has probably eroded quite a bit, too. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Aura. I'm thinking about the uh, kind of infinity of, I'm going to use the word data, but I don't believe necessary. The infinity of co-presence can never be captured by coding. And, and I think another thing that happens is that, uh, that people who became academic stars, that, like, your, like, like Stanley Fish, um, another person I would mention in that same breath would be Jane Gallup. Um, they had a kind of, their presence was larger, even when they were present, there was, there was so much about them that once you get the internet, you might get them on there and they might survive, but they also, you lose a lot of them 
in that being the mode of communication. Some people might make it bigger on the internet whom in person don't quite have the same allure or charisma. I wonder, do you, in my conversations with some of my colleagues who are my age or younger, there's a kind of punk rock attitude too that is a sort of death to rock stars approach <laughs> that you know really is turned off by the whole keynote idea. Um, do you think that that plays into this discussion as well, or or no? I, here's what I, I actually that's interesting. I think what's happened is. Uh, as universities have kind of, uh, dare I say, gone downhill, what's been lost largely is questions about history and tradition. They don't know. Uh, they don't know where this comes from. They don't know what those traditions are anymore. When you mentioned in, if I can bring this up in your list of questions, the whole problem of the disappearance of pure theory, does anyone teach it anymore? They don't even know. Um, you can teach a theory class, but uh, the problem is that they are lacking the context for that. That was so strong at, at, at even at the turn of the century. God, it's hard saying turn of the century, but even maybe for the first two, 10 years into the 21st century, it's kind of evaporated. Um, the history of, of, of theory, um, the history of literature um, is, 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 it's spotty. It's really spotty. If you see anything, you'll see people, I think, specializing in one thing or another right now. You see them doing medical humanities, or you'll see them doing, and I don't think this is a biggie, but you do see them doing psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalytic criticism still. And they seem to have a better idea about the history of that, maybe because that field demands that knowledge in certain ways. Uh, what you don't see, for example, is, it, is a lot of Derrida. You're more likely to get Foucault, but what do they know about what what do they know about Foucault? Um, and all they know is that there's Foucault and he says things, and so they say Foucault says. I don't know how many times I've heard that, but I don't know the context. Um, and so they're lacking all of the, 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 what were the questions these guys were dealing with? Where did they come from? Why were they writing about this? Oh, they don't know. And so, yeah, I think you do get a kind of what you called punk rock attitude about it because it's completely detached now. And they're detached from that. You're uh, going to be attending the upcoming conference, assuming that all goes well, uh, pandemic yep. wise. Is this the the first conference you've attended since uh, we've the world has been thrown into this pandemic? Yeah, in fact, I was I had something I was going to come to in when was it? No, the last one I went to was 2019, um, and then right after that, pretty much right after that, it shut down. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm look I'm I'm hoping that they get smart finally uh, because I would love to come. Mm -hmm. Do you and now I can drive. <laughs> right. That's true. Do you uh anticipate the experience to be similar to what it was before? Or do you imagine that it's going to be changed significantly for you? 
Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. Uh, in some ways, it's going to be very much the same, assuming that the people who with who that that the, the panels that I'm on that those people come, they're pretty much the same group that I've spent a lot of time with at that conference. Um, I think people generally may be more constrained, but I also think if there's any kind of opening uh, in any of this, they're going to be so happy to be in co-presence with other people, finally, um, that it might actually be kind of joyful. That's the optimistic view. Right. That's what I that's what I suspect. I think that it will. I, I hope that we're right. I did have the privilege of chatting with Jane Gallup uh, just a, a few conversations before you and I are talking now. You know, Jane ended up, uh, of course, writing a very significant book about uh, called Feminists Accused of Sexual Harassment. And oh, yes, I know that one. In in that book, she she puzzles, I think, quite productively over the question of whether um, the the channels of intellectual engagement uh, that academics find themselves in could can be um, let's just call it neutered to the point ah. where you 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 just sort of strip out or block the erotic um, as as operative. And and her argument in that book was to a certain extent you can't do that. Um, intellectual relationships have a erotic or sexual component in it of some ineffable uh, degree. And I was seeking her thoughts on whether she thought she would rethink that um, that proposition in our sort of post me too and now covid sort of 6 feet apart age i see what you're saying um my sense is that it will take a different form but it'll still be there mm-hmm. what happens when people get together with people there'll just be different modes um and it's not so much about power as it is about and i tend to agree with jane there's something intrinsic to some of this activity, which is linked into issues of desire um, and maybe even eroticism. And you can't, you have to, you have to stop it where it's inappropriate or involves power dynamics that go beyond, but power dynamics, unfortunately, are also part of that problem. And so that's, it's something that has to be managed. Um, I think it may take different forms, but it'll still be there. It's 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 uh, it's part of who we are. It is, and and co-presence, I think, makes it less imaginary. I, to be Lacanian, uh, makes it less imaginary, and and actually, in some ways, quite literally, substantive, pheromonal. Um, the imaginary is not necessarily. There's still imaginary involved, but you're also dealing with with real people and in, in, in real presence, which can also um, actually put people off. It's not mm-hmm. just a, a beckoning. It's also a kind of not beckoning. Mm-hmm. So it'll shift. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll be interested in, uh, in chatting with you this February and, um, and seeing what your, what your thoughts are about co-presence 
when hopefully it's <laughs> yeah. it's happening and we're able to sample it again uh, as yeah. as, uh, as living academics. Um, I wanted to ask you another question, which is that Jane's thoughts on on this question then led sort of naturally to her wanting to eulogize, I think, the end of the profession in terms of it being a kind of exciting gateway for a, a new generation of intellectuals coming up and that that's where graduate students sort of burst onto the scene and uh, her phrase was to ask the devastating question. And that in arranging the panels, on one hand, this is a really strong group of people that are going to be in attendance this coming February. But on the other hand, that's because they're tenure track and most cases tenured with a, with probably some sort of travel budget. And the graduate students in attendance are few and far in between. Do you see any way to um, fight this this trend or is this just the rock rolling down the hill? I, I think this has something to do with the way universities, I, I can only, I can't make generalizations, I shouldn't. Um, some universities with which I am familiar uh, have in a sense ceased really focusing on the kind of thinking and scholarship that uh, lends itself well to conferences. And they're more interested in some other kinds of questions and limitations. Um, and it, I see that as, I, I see my own students, I still have some, uh, kind of struggling against the kinds of things that they're being asked to do um, it's simply because it's there's not really a sense there of what the production of original, creative, interesting work would bring. No one actually cares about that. I would say that may be the case at some institutions. But the conferences are a place that really do foster that. And so if if we can get graduate students there, that's in a way, it's a kind of saving grace for them. They can see that. I think there are a lot of faculty who are tenure track at institutions who don't go to conferences. Uh, and they certainly, if, if they did, they don't, of course, not after COVID, but even before that, weren't doing that as much, partly because the institutions themselves didn't value that kind of participation on the part of faculty. So it's not just the grad students who fall off. It's faculty themselves who may aim only at conferences that have some kind of, of oh, an M MLA, a premature or something. Um, and conferences like uh, Louisville, which I, I think actually is, for me, the, the best conference of the year, uh, unless it's something in France. No, kidding. Um, don't get that as much because people don't aren't familiar any longer with the differences in disciplines or fields or 
eras or any of that stuff. I, I've seen just a kind of funny uh, ignorance take over. I'm not saying faculty are ignorant, but I, they don't care. I think that's it. They don't care. And I also suspect, and this may be linked into the lack of graduate students, that the sense of the employability of con current graduate students has gone down so much that the kind of activities like going to conferences that might have helped them on the job market, no one's encouraging them to do that right now because people think there's no job market. Did Does it surprise you that we are collectively where we are right now? <laughs> no, not at all. We live in a culture where people walk across campus staring at, 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 at tracking phones. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't look around them anymore. Um, they're, they become the narcissistic recipients of what the internet gives them back, gives, as the internet gives them back to themselves. The outside, the world that's different, the other, the others, there's no other. Um, which is, it's kind of an interesting psychoanalytic question, actually. Um, but you, it, that, that's part of the problem. Um, we're also suffering hugely right now with tremendous incivility uh, culturally. Um, which is potentially linked into that that strange narcissism that's emerging. Um, I'm not saying it's it's you know pathological narcissism, but it's what you get back from your computer screen what you put into it in certain ways. You get yourself back to yourself. Um, and part of that problem is is that, that people don't really know how to interact with other people because they've not been in that context. And because even when they were, half the time they were interacting with a machine. And that's not interaction. So, so yeah. So, so yeah. we've gone from there is no sexual relationship to there is no other. There, well, that's an interesting way to put it, man. Yeah. The other is us. Mm -hmm. The other is actually the machine that hides itself. I'm an admirer of your book on the poetics of DNA, which I found um, very uh, lucid, which I think given the nature of the subject matter there is is quite an achievement, particularly for a reader like me, and very prophetic in the, in the, the way in which you explore how DNA replaces conceptions of blood for uh, a, a offering a kind of mana from heaven for pseudoscience and a, and a kind of pseudo folk belief system that in so many ways we seem to be seeing the sort of 2.0 of that pseudoscience yeah. as 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 the sort of terrain we're forced to navigate kind of post-Trump and in the midst of this pandemic. And I was very curious to see what your own take on making sense of our, our moment is in that context. Well wow, that thank you. Thank you, Matt. That's 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 a really great question. It's isn't it well, even though they're sequencing um, these variants we don't get enough information, not about the sequencing, but about some other things that 
in, in a way we're left, we have something that could enlighten maybe, if anybody understood what that meant. But it also, we're being left out of that enlightenment in certain strange ways as well. And I'll give you an example, <clears throat> excuse me, certain, apparently, according to some newspapers, and of course how one can rely on those who knows, some blood types react less, are, are, are provide more, I don't know how to put that. People with some blood types don't get affected as much by this pandemic as others. Which blood types are those? Oh, good luck trying to find that. Um, presumably it's O positive. Who has O positive? Good luck trying to find that. And so that, that goes back to what you were saying about the, the genetic stuff. That's a genetic aspect of humanity. People, what does that mean? And what does it, what does it mean in terms of anything that matters right now in terms of policy or how people behave or how we treat this? publicly or anything else. We may know, in other words, things about the genetics of the, pan of, of the viruses and the genetics of the sufferers, but they're not, all they're doing is helping us identify what's taking everything over. That what they're not doing uh, it appears to be giving us some sort of sense of scientific progress. What it's not doing is getting us to understand why there are people, for example, who are against vaccines? What's what's the argument about that? Um, what does that have to do with anything? Um, and at the same time, you start to see some other things going on that perhaps are less genetic, but are still kind of genetic. That is, we live in the age, uh, and this is a genetic issue. Um, we don't need any of the compensations to males because they didn't know who daddy was you know, all of the covering over women, making sure they never go, all of that stuff. We don't need that because we know who daddy is. Why do we know that? Since 1988, we could do the genealogy, the genotypes. That makes a huge change. Never before in history did anybody know for sure. Now they do. And what you see right now are an awful lot of descent of male compensation, guns, getting rid of Roe v. Wade, all of that stuff. And so this isn't directly related to, to genetics, but it does have to do with what you were mentioning about that, that sense, that feel that we've got this. Well, you did. It's just we did have it. The problem is that it took away the magic that privileged males. There's no reason to privilege them. We know who daddy is now. Any last uh, thoughts or questions or advice for me as we wrap up? Uh, I hope, Matt, that you enjoy doing this job that you've got, which I, I will say this. I, one of the wonderful things about the Louisville Conference through the years has been the welcoming feel of the people who have run it, uh, Tom Byers, um, Alan Golding, and the staff people who have assisted, and in the early days, maybe more prominently than I don't, than later, at least to outsiders, they were quite visible and wonderful. And the social aspect of that culture, of that conference is as important as the intellectual, and they too melded very beautifully. And I hope that despite COVID, you guys can keep that up. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Judith Ruth. 
If you did, please hit like and subscribe. Please also consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult the louisvilleconference.com for details. Thanks again for listening.